When we look out at the universe, the biggest, most luminous, most massive object that most of us see on a regular basis is the sun. The sun is some 300,000 times more massive than Earth, and it is the brightest, most luminous object visible in Earth's sky at any point. However, while we look at the sun as our source of heat, light, and in many ways, life on our planet, it also is an active place. It also exhibits all sorts of internal and external events, some of them of which are actually quite threatening, not only to Earth, but specifically to human civilization on Earth. And this is something I believe we've ignored far too long, much at our own peril. What is going on on the sun and how does it affect what happens here on Earth? Come find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Throughout most of human history, we viewed the sun as a constant place. We viewed the sun as something that shines day in, day out with the same brightness, the same properties, and nothing very much changes. But as we've gotten to look at the sun in closer and closer detail, we've discovered it's an extremely variable place and that much of its activity can be monitored and even in some ways predicted a little bit over time. And yet when it comes to what we've done on Earth to prepare for the many, many events that the sun can inflict on a planet like us, what we've done, we know, is woefully insufficient. And that's why I'm so pleased to bring as our guest onto this podcast, Sierra Salter. Sierra has a bachelor's degree from UC Berkeley, a master's from Embry-Riddle, and is currently getting her PhD at the University of Iceland. She specializes in solar storms, space weather, plasmas on the sun, and a whole lot more that's right at the heart of what we want to talk about. And I'm so pleased to welcome her to the program. Sierra, hi, and thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Ethan. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. You know, when I when I think about the sun, right, I think about it generally in the context of other stars. Um, and I remember learning, oh, the sun is just a typical star. And then I remember getting a little more into the weeds and learning, actually, if you're looking at the stars that are out there in the sky, the sun is more massive than about 95% of them. That you have most stars are smaller and lower in mass and cooler than the sun, but the brightest stars, the ones that make up a large fraction of what you see in the night sky with your naked eye, are actually brighter and bluer and hotter and shorter lived than the sun. When you think about the sun, is this like is this like the prototype of any other star that you'd study because because you look at this and you're like, yes, the sun, that's what I'm interested in. Or do you look at it and do you think about how other stars really are different from the sun? Do you think about more like the compare and contrast or do you look at the sun and you say, nope, that's the biggest, it's the closest, it's right here, this is the prototype? Yeah, so I think that 
Um, we definitely should compare it to what else is out there in the universe. And we know that um, the most populous stars um, in the universe are these smaller dwarf stars, and red dwarfs are the most um, common star, and they're actually more active than the sun. Um, so yeah, I definitely think we need to look at the universe and think, oh, well, I mean, if, if those things are happening out there, could it happen here? Um, and we, we tend to separate the two. Um, so if these red dwarfs are very active and very common, um, I think we need to look at that a little bit more seriously. Um, and so, in fact, the nearest star to us um, is one of these active red dwarfs, uh, Proxima Centauri, and it's actually um, a so-called flare star. And so these uh, flare stars are a type, of, a type of variable star that constantly give off flares, solar flares. So is that is that what we mean by activity? Is that what we mean by an active star is something that that doesn't just constantly emit the same amount of light all across the electromagnetic spectrum? Is this something that it it has outbursts, it emits these like energetic bursts? Is that what we mean by active? Yeah, I mean that that's definitely how I think of active is that there are more energetic bursts. Um, and more flare activity. Um, and our sun is kind of monotonic in that sense that um, we don't see that many flares and that much activity and coronal mass ejections happening, but we see it so much elsewhere in the universe. Well, let me ask you this then, because I, I would like to compare that, right? We, we, if I go back to the time of Galileo or something, I can say, okay, like Galileo did not know about stars flaring or the sun flaring. He was pretty much able to say, look, I can see sunspots and that's about it. Uh, according to what I know about it, we didn't really advance past that, right? Where the sun is, it's a disk constant output. I guess it gets bigger and smaller from our perspective as Earth orbits the sun, you know, once a year. Um, and other than that, yeah, it has sunspots. Sometimes there are lots of sunspots. Sometimes there are few sunspots. Sometimes there are no sunspots. But other than that, sun is pretty constant. That was pretty much, as far as I know, what we knew about stars and their variabilities up until like the mid 1800s um but now we know oh yeah there are all of these sorts of events sun stars like our sun have a solar wind they have radiation that goes all across the electromagnetic spectrum not just visible not even just ultraviolet visible infrared it has radio emissions it has x-ray emissions and i understand that when you get a flare event uh, you get this bright burst of emissions at all energies, but you also get these energetic wind particles, you get x-ray emissions. When I think about the kind of flares that our sun puts off, and you talk about something like Proxima Centauri or these other 
M dwarf, red dwarf stars that are out there, even if they make up like three out of four or four out of five stars in the universe, are we are we talking about when they're active, they do something comparable to what our sun does? Or when they emit flares, when, when you call them flare stars, what is it that makes their flare so notable compared to a star like our sun? Yeah, so I mean, they're definitely giving off bigger uh, flares, but it's comparable in you know what our sun is doing, just more energy and more massive, so typically called like super flares. And, you know, we're finding out that it's pretty common for these super flares actually to just blow off planetary atmospheres. Um, and that's, I guess, that's part of why it's more noticeable um, because it's so much bigger, but it's it's comparable to what our sun is doing. It's just not what we're seeing, you know, within our human scale with our sun now. So let me let me let me let me say something, and then let me ask you something. So when you say these flares are comparable to what happens on our sun, except more energetic, uh, that actually sounds really bad to me. Because a star like our sun, you know, okay, I know how bright our sun is, I know how much energy it gives off, and I know how big a flare from it is. If you're talking about a star like Proxima Centauri, I know that Proxima Centauri is about one one thousandth as luminous as the sun. It gives off on average about one one thousandth of the sun's energy. And so if you're telling me actually this star, Proxima Centauri and stars like it, they are flare stars. They have super flares. They flare commonly and more energetically than our sun does. And normally they're a thousand times weaker than our sun is. Uh, that that sounds like bad news to me. That sounds like, okay, like you're talking about a world. If I wanted to have a world that I maybe imagined could somehow support life, if I'm around one of these M dwarf stars, I have to be close to it. I have to be in proximity to it or I'm going to be frozen. If I put planet Earth or planet like Earth at the Earth-Sun distance from Proxima Centauri, I'd be frozen like Pluto. So I have to be close. It emits these super flares and it strips my atmosphere away. This this sounds like bad news around these these M dwarf stars. Um is that is that what we think actually happens and if so, does that mean that we fully expect that most of the rocky worlds around these low mass stars might have no atmospheres left at all by this point in time? Yeah, that's my understanding. So there was a, a recent um, Hubble Space Telescope, a fairly recent mission called HAZMAT, um, habitable zones around M dwarf activity across time. And yeah, they're basically finding out that um, a lot of these planets near red dwarfs seem to be not habitable because basically their atmosphere, they're being blown off by their star. Yeah, so that that does sound like bad news to me. If that were the case, I could imagine then that the only place you'd, you'd be able to have life would be 
um, maybe someplace like like underground where where the pressure was enough that maybe you could have some sort of liquid water like underground, uh, like maybe exists on a, a world like Ganymede in our outer solar system. But I would expect that like having an atmosphere with a liquid water ocean, that that might well be impossible on on a world around an M dwarf, especially with this flares and this atmospheric stripping activity. Is that is that kind of what you're thinking too? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it, you know, it's disturbing, right, that we're seeing all of these planets around us and nearby in these common star systems and their atmospheres are just being blown off. You would think that that would make us want to, you know, take the sun more seriously, but in fact, you know, I think we're ignoring it um, in a lot of a lot of ways. Do we have any idea why these small, low-mass stars seem to make these energetic flare events and bigger, more massive stars like our sun maybe don't? Do we have any idea why that might be the case, or is that something we're still trying to puzzle out? Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that the, the red dwarfs are more magnetic, and they usually have deeper convective zones. So that allows them to have, you know, this explosive activity um, that is stronger than the sun. I guess that makes sense, right? Because we know that just like planet Earth has layers and the sun has layers, right? It has a uh, a fusion zone at the core, it has a radiative zone surrounding that, and then it has the photosphere at the edge. I, I can imagine that, you know, look, the sun just has bigger temperature gradients than a smaller star, and the sun occupies more volume than a smaller star. And so, sure, I can imagine that in a red dwarf, in a very low mass star, the core, the intermediate spaces and the and the uh, edges of it are more interconnected than they are for a star like ours. But I would also think, you know, hey, we've got a planet like planet Earth, and we seem to be protected from all of our space weather because we have this dynamo in our core that makes a magnetic field and that magnetic field is pretty protective. And if I was like, oh, well, maybe maybe other planets don't have that, I could look at something like Mars and say, well, Mars used to have that right before it got too cold and its magnetic dynamo died and its atmosphere was stripped away by the sun. We know Mars had a liquid water past. Do you think it might be possible for any of the worlds around these red dwarf stars to have a magnetic field that sufficiently protects them from their parent star? Or would this be a case more like, no, you know, even if you imagine a big planet-wide magnetic field, these super flares are so super and so flary that the atmosphere doesn't stand a chance? Yeah, I think it's the the, la the latter there, that the atmosphere and magnetospheres that they have don't stand a chance. Um, at least that's my understanding. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's crazy that, you know, Mars, you know, it's the solar wind, you know, deteriorated its atmosphere, we believe. And, you know, we're acting like that couldn't happen to us, but it appears to have happened right next door to us. 
Yeah, I mean, here's the whole thing that I start thinking of is, okay, look, it's it did happen next door to us, and as I understand it, this was the this was the big finding of NASA's MAVEN mission, which is really really only happened a few years ago in the grand scheme of things. And and Maven confirmed, yeah, that this is the effect that solar wind stripping has on Mars. And one of the things I remember it discovered is that we have flare events from our sun, right? We do have solar flares. We do have coronal mass ejections. And so you have all of this, I, I guess I'll call it space weather. You have all of this weather that happens on the sun, and some of it's quite violent. Um, and when the sun is flaring versus when the sun is just uh, quiescent or not flaring, um, I know that even today we observe atmospheric particles getting stripped off of Mars at 20 times the normal rate. And these are just for the little rinky-dink flares. So... So now you've got me thinking, maybe I should be worried. Maybe I should be worried about Earth. Um, what would you say, um, not, not to like human civilization, but if I, was, if I was just an animal on Earth at some point over the last, I don't know, four billion years or so, uh, well, I guess we haven't had animals that long. If I was a living creature on Earth at some point over the last four billion years or so, um, would I ever have a need to worry? Would it ever be a legitimate concern for me to worry about the sun posing a danger to me, a life form here on Earth? And and what would it take for, for me to justify being worried about it? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm worried. And I think um, creatures in the past um, may have encountered this. So if you look at um, mass extinction events, um, so there's something called the Big Five, these five large mass extinctions. And, you know, we think that, you know, they were volcanoes or asteroids or these random events. But what if it was actually an extreme coronal mass ejection that knocked a ton of oxygen out of the atmosphere and caused a mass extinction. I think that's possible. Um, so we see that these mass extinctions have happened kind of periodically, like 450 million years ago, 350 million years ago, etc. like in these 50 million uh, 100 million um, increments. And, you know, what if every 50 million years, the sun like builds up all this magnetic activity and just bursts and it rips off tons of oxygen from the Earth's atmosphere. And, you know, eventually after some time, plants, you know, rebuild that oxygen in the atmosphere. That's what I think. I think that that's possible. I don't think it, it was just this random event that happened every time. I think that maybe space weather had something to do with these mass extinction events. I think that's possible. You know, that's something that's really interesting to consider. I haven't considered this before, but when I think about it now, um, you know, I know that uh, I know that the 
evidence for periodicity of mass extinctions uh it exists and people argue over how significant it is but if it if it is significant um you know it's something we have to look for a cause of and if an active sun if a large event if a large space weather event from the sun impacted earth i can easily imagine you know um some molecules are going to be more fragile than others and some uh components of our atmosphere are going to be more likely to be stripped away and sent out into space than others and how could this change our atmospheric contents and i suppose if it's severe enough you know if you make just a large significant change to any ecosystem all at once it can cause uh, it can trigger a collapse, it can trigger uh, a catastrophic readjustment, it could lead to a mass extinction event pretty easily. Um, and so maybe maybe the sun once did pose a danger to life on Earth, and maybe it could again. I don't think, though, that you're arguing that that should be something that we're worried about happening like this century, though, are you? Well, so, I mean, I'm worried about it. Um, I think we should be worried about it. I, I honestly think we should have um, a subterranean civilization with like oxygen chambers just in case. I mean, look, like we, we know that Mars, something like this happened to Mars. We know it's happening all across the galaxy all the time. Um, why would we think that it's just not going to happen here? So, like, every time you see the aurora, right, that's a little bit of the atmosphere being stripped away, right? It's, it's ionizing oxygen and, you know, the things that we breathe. Um, so, you know, I, you know, hopefully we're not looking at, you know, another 15 million year timescale event happening soon, but we're taking a risk, right? And we know that these other smaller events that happen all the time, you know, we know it's coming. You know, and that that I think, though, uh, highlights what I more typically worry about when it comes to the sun is that I think when I ever whenever I do like a risk reward thing, I I start to worry about, okay, like, what are the odds and what are the consequences? And as as a human being, you know, I know the thing that we are, like, notoriously bad at is the very, very low-frequency, low-risk, but high-consequence events. We, we are terrible at doing risk analysis when it comes to those. Um, but when I think about what comes with the sun... I think about how, okay, look, we know that the sun emits solar flares of different classes where where X is the highest class. And we know they have coronal mass ejections. And some of these coronal mass ejections, uh, based on the magnetic field configuration of the sun at the time and how Earth's magnetic field is oriented relative to it, sometimes we get lucky when one of these things happen and the flare or the mass ejection is not directed towards us and we're safe. And sometimes we still get lucky because it is directed towards us, but the magnetic field of Earth 
relative to the configuration of the magnetic field at the site of the flare on the sun um, is aligned in such a way that the charged particles get deflected away. And we might get an auroral display, but it's not going to have any effects beyond that on planet Earth other than stripping a small amount of the atmosphere away. I worry about what happens when a flare comes or a mass ejection comes, it's headed directly towards us, and the magnetic field on the sun is exactly anti-aligned with Earth's magnetic field at the time. Because that's not going to pose a hazard to you and me as like flesh meat made creatures, but it is going to pose a tremendous problem for all of our electronic and electrical infrastructure on the planet. And now that we've industrialized, electrified, and in other ways, um, technologized our planet, um, what do you see as maybe the more common place type of risk we face from the sun? Yeah, so on average, uh, we have a coronal mass ejection every day on average. Are you serious? It's that often? Yes, yes. So on so during solar maximum, um, you'll have a couple a day. And during solar minimum, you'll have fewer. But on average, it's one coronal mass ejection per day. So this is something happening every single day. And... It doesn't necessarily have to be a Carrington scale or X-class uh, flare or chronal mass, giant chronal mass ejection to interfere with our technology, right? Uh, so power companies and satellite companies, they're losing money on like, a regular basis because these things are interfering with our technology so much. Um, and so, yeah, the thing we have to worry about is another Carrington event, which we are overdue for um, by some beliefs. Well, let's 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 look into that a little bit. So I'll, I'll tell you the paltry amount that I know about the Carrington event. Uh, and then you can you can sort of uh, either correct me or fill in the gaps where I left just giant gaps. So I I know that this dude Richard Carrington was in North America in 1859, and one of the things Carrington did was he was a, a solar astronomer, so he would observe the sun. And there was a sunspot group, a really big irregular group, on the sun in 1859. And he observed what he called a white light flare, where even during the day on the sun, he could see that like something was happening. Some activity was happening during the day on the sun at this sunspot group. And it lasted a few minutes and it danced around. And, you know, this is something that was maybe the size of like 10 planet Earths on the sun. Like it's pretty big. Um, and it's dancing, and then it stops. And, okay, this happened during the day. And then about 17 hours later, so the next night in the middle of the night, we know now Earth gets hit by these charged particles from the sun, um, and we get this huge, huge solar storm having effects on Earth. We started to see aurora 
all across the globe, wherever it was night, even at the equator. In North America, people woke up. It was so bright. It was so bright that people thought it was dawn and they went to work. And people discovered that they could read a newspaper by the light of the aurora. It was so bright. And um, the craziest thing to me is that, you know, this was the 1850s. So it's not like we had all of the modern electrified world, but we did have things like basic circuits, right? We we had learned a little bit about electricity and magnetism that we had some circuits and we had large telegraph systems. We had a transatlantic cable that would send telegraph messages and these telegraphs started going crazy not because anyone was sending messages but because of the induced currents in the wiring that that paper would spark and catch fire because this stuff was starting electrical fires even with this primitive 163 years ago electrical system that we had in place and the Carrington event, as I understand it, um, yeah, okay, we haven't had an event hit Earth quite that big since 1859. But I also understand, historically, we probably had a bigger one uh, in the year 774. We definitely had a bigger one uh, about 9,200 years ago. And there was one that was comparable in size in 2012. Um, it just happened that the sun and the earth were not lined up exactly right at the time, but that the flare missed us by nine days. If the flare had occurred nine days later when the sun had rotated to face earth, uh, we would have gotten hit by it. So that's what I know about the Carrington event. And how scared of something like this should we be? You know, humanity, as, as humans, we've got to know that it's risky to take no precautions against this. Um, what do you think people should know about this? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's really, really risky. And I think what people should know is that we have built an entire global technological civilization without any concern for astrophysics. And the Carrington event, um, the most well-cited probability paper says that there is a 12% chance of it happening from 2012 to 2022, so basically now. And then every decade after that, it goes up a little bit. But 12% that's like one in eight. That's a lot. I mean, those those are scary odds. Like those those aren't even odds you'd bet a grad student's career on. Like if something was if something was that like dire one in eight. Like if I said there's a one in eight chance you won't get hit by a car when you cross the street, or one in eight chance that you will get hit by a car if you cross the street. Like that is too much. I'd take an alternate route. I wouldn't cross the street. Yeah, I mean, it, I think that 12% number is really, really concerning. And reading that paper, you know, it's, it's an exhaustive calculation of the data from all different sources. Um, so that's the most well-cited paper. There are other papers 
that calculate different lower probabilities, but they're not as well cited and they're not considered to be as like on par with the data and with what we know. Well, but this this kind of goes to the risk reward thing I was talking about because even if even if the odds are less than that, right? Even if this is a once a century event or once every few centuries events, um, we know that it's it's only a matter of time before another Carrington scale event happens. And like you said, maybe it won't be something that is as big of a coronal mass ejection. Maybe it'll even be a smaller flare. But even smaller flares, if the magnetic field properties are all exactly wrong, can still trigger the same types of induced currents. I know that um, there was a blackout, I think, in Toronto, Canada, um, a few years ago that was caused by a space weather event um, and that and that more local outages happen more commonly. Um, but that something like this, when I look at the consequences of what would happen if a Carrington level event happened on our planet today, um, pretty much all of the estimates I've heard are talking about this being Earth's first, 14-figure natural disaster. We're talking about a natural disaster that would cause more than $10 trillion worth of infrastructure damage. Um, and what I find even more concerning than that is not only will this, you know, overload the electrical grid, blow out power stations and substations, and cause power surges into residential and industrial and commercial areas, it's going to cause fires and it's going to destroy um, roads and the ability to get goods in and out of places. And I really think about, you know, how simple of a thing uh, having the giant amount of rainfall that happened in Houston, Texas a few years ago, when that happened and they lost power, uh, they couldn't get food and water to people. They couldn't, um, they couldn't, you know, just that little bit, it, you know, when you have a major event like that and people can't heat or cool their homes and they need it and people can't get food and water, um, you're talking like all of a sudden this goes from, oh, it's expensive and really inconvenient um, to this is causing a massive loss of life. And I see that same potential for a space weather event for as long as we're unprepared like we are right now. Do you do you see sort of the same things or am I even understating it? Oh, definitely. I, I completely agree. Um, so, so the Congressional EMP Commission, they estimated that if we have a Carrington event right now, we would probably lose nine out of 10 Americans from starvation and just societal collapse. The only reason we can sustain a population of hundreds of millions of Americans is technology. You take that away, we're in big trouble. Um, and all of our technologies are not, you know, we're not working on this. That, that's the big, like, shocking, disturbing thing. You know, when I when I was younger and I first learned about this, um, the first thing that made sense to me was, 
okay, look, if we know an event like this is coming, and we know what we know about induced current, which is pretty much wherever you have a changing magnetic field around a wire that has a potential to carry a current, it's going to induce a current in the wire. And it gets worse for longer wires, it gets worse for loops of wires, and it gets worse for coils of wires. So any place you have more wire, longer wire, more loops and coils of wire, and they're bigger in area, that's where it happens. And so I said, you know, oh, well, why don't you just increase the grounding, right? If you just have, where does electricity want to go? It always wants to go into the earth. If you can make a short circuit and have it go into the earth, you ground it, why don't you do that? And then I learned that every time they try and do this at a power station or substation to have it adequately grounded, um, someone comes in uh, because, oh, what do you use for grounding? You use some sort of conductor like copper. Guess what? Copper is a lucrative material. I can risk my life. I might get electrocuted, I might not, but I could get like $9,000 worth of copper by robbing the substation. And people do. People do this all the time. There are like no substations that are adequately grounded because when people build the grounding into the substation, the substation just gets robbed and then it's not grounded. Is it? Is that true? Is what I learned actually true? Is this a real problem? Well, so I... I spoken with um, electrical grid operators a little bit and they are not prepared for this. They do look at um, GICs, geomagnetically induced currents, and they try to measure the effects of that. But my understanding is that you know, we're risking melting some of these transformers um, and we don't have the means of replacing them if it happened on a very, very large scale. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but... <laughs> You, you know, it, it's basically saying, look, like what I'm saying about not having enough grounding, yeah, that's one thing to be worried about. But there are a whole slew of things to be worried about. Even if we have that grounding, that wouldn't save this from being the disaster it is. And part of what I guess I get worried about is the risk seems to be increasing with time. The more reliant we are on our electrical infrastructure and the more widespread it is and the more digital our lives become, if some of this goes down or if all of this goes down, um, we're in, we're in much worse shape. We've, we've lost a lot of our resilience against an event like this. Like when I think about, okay, what would happen in like a New York City? or a Chicago, or a San Francisco, or a Houston, or a Phoenix, um, especially something like a Phoenix, if all of a sudden there's no power in the city, and there's no running water in the city, and all you have for food is the food that's already in the grocery stores because uh, the traffic can't get in and out. And like what what's going to happen there. And I, I think that could very quickly become a 
a post-apocalyptic scenario like this this really is the type of apocalypse that can really trigger in every human for themselves sort of free-for-all nightmare um is that is that a thing that you worry about too yes oh oh definitely so um i i mean i definitely after learning more and more about this um and all the people that i've talked to with every conversation i've had with experts um i feel like we are less even less prepared than what i thought before um so i definitely i personally have you know a cabinet of supplies you know flashlights food water uh things like that just in case um so there's this uh, website ready.gov and they actually they have a section on space weather and it's pretty crazy because it just says we're gonna lose everything you know and there's you know it's basically the government saying we have no plan for this you're on your own so you better be ready like it's it's crazy um so it's ready.gov slash space hyphen weather i think that's what it is wow um, yeah so definitely go to ready.gov and you know be prepared just in case like i mean i think it's the smart thing to do wow so let's see if i was around three years ago and i would say how can we even know if something like this is coming uh the best thing i would have known to rely on is okay we have some satellites that are at the l1 lagrange point uh some sun monitoring satellites that are located at this point between the earth and the sun so that it always sits you know about about one and a half million kilometers away from earth closer to the sun and okay look the sun's like 93 million miles away so if this thing is a little less than 1 million miles away uh at least by time the particles emitted by the sun get there we'll be able to say okay look we've got like 45 minutes now before they arrive and we know that the magnetic field is all wrong these particles are going to funnel down induce some current um unplug everything go live uh go go into your bunker that sierra told you to build and you know and protect yourself but now i at least know we have a beautiful world-class solar observatory um called the daniel k inoue solar telescope and that's on the top of uh haleakala in maui hawaii um, and the Inue Solar Telescope um, can actually measure when a flare occurs on the surface of the sun or a coronal mass ejection occurs, it can actually measure how the magnetic field is oriented. So instead of, you know, less than an hour of lead time now, depending on how long it takes the particles to get here, uh, we could have anywhere from about, I'll say about 17 hours in the case of a really fast Carrington-like event, to more like three or four days, which is a more typical flare. Um, is that heartening at all? If we, if we got that warning and we learned that sometime in the next few days, um, a big 
worrisome flare with the wrong magnetic field was headed towards us, um, what what would we do? What would you recommend that we do? What would you like to see happening? I'm, I'm sorry to also ask you this knowing full well uh, that we are like the antithesis of an ounce of prevention society, that we do not give the stitch in time to save nine stitches later. We we bet that the disaster isn't going to happen and then it happens and we react to it. But but if you did have those few precious days to prepare, how would you do it? What would you what would you tell everyone to do to sort of minimize the damage and danger to them? Yeah, I mean, so I think the the three days, you know, that, that's not enough to do anything. Um, so that's why, you know, I think space weather forecast thing is interesting, but I don't think it's going to help solve this problem. Uh, we already know it's coming. That's the only forecast you need. So, you know, there are all these sources out there that say, oh, if we get that three-day warning from our solar observatories, um, we're going to shut down the power grids. Yeah, I looked into that. We're not going to do that. I mean, isn't it true that even with most uh, power grid stuff, that they need a tremendous amount of time to safely ramp things down and turn them off? We can't do anything with a three-day forecast. That's my understanding and my investigation into this. So first of all, think about it. It's, it's two different things. It's uh, Number one, it's liability. So what if we get that three-day warning and the government says, shut it all down? Um, you're going to immediately kill people who are connected to, you know, medical devices that need power. So what if that was the wrong call to turn it all down, to turn it all off? Then you have this major liability issue. Oh, boy, this is this is like trying to get people to evacuate when you've got a hurricane warning um, that that the people who do evacuate, if they're if they don't get hit by a hurricane, they they think they made the wrong decision and it was a waste. And if they do get hit by a hurricane, everyone who stays dies. Yeah. So yeah, it's major liability. Um, and I I didn't find any power grid operators or people in that field who said, yeah, we're going to shut it all down. If you find that, like, let me know. But I, I couldn't find that because of the liability issue and also because that's just not how it works like if the government said okay every power grid operator turn off like how the government and you know bureaucracy it doesn't work that way like it takes months to do everything like to do anything i mean so it, i don't think it's even possible for all the um grids to coordinate and turn off especially um, if you're talking about something global. Now, and to add to all of this, I don't think there's even agreement that turning it off would help. Um, I've heard some space weather scientists say, oh no, you want to turn everything on so that the current has you know, this path to flow through. So yeah, I mean, there's not even agreement on what to do, let alone a plan. So I think um, I don't want to work in space weather forecasting because I don't think 
that's going to help us to get this three-day warning. Like, that's just going to be horrifying. Are you basically worried that you would be like Cassandra from Greek mythology if this happened? That even if this was the position you were in, and even if you knew exactly what to do and what needed to be done and how to do it, no one would listen to you anyway. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so even now, you know, we know this is going to happen. And every time I discuss it, like, people just do not take it seriously at all. Well, one of, one of the one of the lies I tell to myself is that I'm I'm a solutions oriented person, um, and that's that's a good lie to tell because um, you know it it sort of makes me feel like there's a thing I can do as far as informing people and getting the word out about what needs to be done. So, if we know an event like this is going to happen. Um, what could we do? Could we could we tell everyone to to unplug everything? Could we tell everyone to disconnect their homes from the power grid? Could we put breakers into the various lines on the power grid to prevent current from surging into their homes, their businesses, their places of work, um, their cities, their infrastructure? Um, is it is that a thing that that we could do that we could put in place um if if we had unlimited capital and political will um so that when the events came when the space weather event came we wouldn't have to suffer these tens of trillions of dollars in property damage and the massive loss of life that would accompany it yeah, so I mean, I think there are a few solutions. Um, number one being just investing in and hardening our grid system. Um, and I think it would be safer to have our grid underground. That might not help the power outage situation um, with the GICs, the induced currents, but that could help with the fires. Right, so we know that fires broke out with the Carrington event. Uh, fires also broke out in a 1921 um, solar su superstorm as well. Um, so I'm a little bit worried about you know the entire grid having tons and tons of fires and that all you know catching on surrounding. Uh, vegetation. So having it underground, that could help. And having more off-grid uh, systems, like what you were saying. And so um, I lived in New Mexico, and in New Mexico, we actually have off-grid, some off-grid buildings. They're called earth ships. And they're basically like little, you know, spaceships in the sense that they, you know, they use solar uh panels and rainwater and they're just completely independent if more of us lived like that i think it would be fine but we're just we're connected to this vast um arguably the largest engineering project ever which is our power grid and it's run down uh it's disturbingly run down um so there's a few you know solutions there with our grid but that those are huge projects obviously, and um, 
I, I'm a little bit concerned we're not going to put the investment needed into our grid. Um, the other thing we can do is that, yeah, we need um, more people to be aware of this problem, especially satellites. But I personally, I think the solution is to figure out a mission to control space weather. Oh, interesting. So you, you actually want to take these hazardous charged particles and find a way to either redirect them or modify them while they're en route to Earth to safely deflect them away from our planet or to at least safely alter their path so that when they arrive on Earth, our magnetic field deflects them away. Yes, exactly. I, I think that is the easiest solution. So you know, all you would have to do is create an artificial magnetic field between the sun and the earth and deflect these particles. Um, and then we wouldn't have to worry about this. Um, so I think that's the solution um, that would be most promising. So we, with our, we had that DART mission, which was claimed to be the first attempt to move a celestial object. Well, you know, I think we should be moving coronal mass ejections because that's how worried about it I am. Well, uh, that's certainly a very ambitious and probably a smart sounding um, move. I do know that uh, NASA did run a mission called uh, Deep Impact before um, the DART mission. And although its goal wasn't to change the course of the body it collided with. It, it collided with an astronomical body, and even though we didn't measure it sufficiently, I'm, I'm sure its motion changed. Anytime you smash a massive thing moving fast into a relatively small mass object, you're, you're going to change its trajectory. But, but one of the benefits we have if we are going to try and change this is we're not talking about something as big and massive as an asteroid. We're talking about individual charged particles, little tiny particles. So even a small magnetic or electric field can deflect these a long distance, especially if you start deflecting them, you know, far from Earth. Yeah, exactly. And so that's what I want to do, actually. I've, I've pitched this to a few investors and I, I write grant proposals on this and I've, I haven't gotten funded, um, but I, I honestly, I think it's really, really important that we figure out how to control space weather, um, not just for um, solar storms, but also potentially uh, for climate, even though it's a little controversial, but um, I there's a lot unknown um, in terms of the relationship between space weather and climate, and what if controlling the space weather um, could offset some of the heating that humans are causing. I, I think that's possible. You know, I don't I don't really know anything about that, but I know that uh, I know that many geoengineering projects are being explored. Um, I've heard about arrays of 
either reflective or light blocking material they want to put in between the Earth and the Sun to reduce uh, the solar radiation impacting Earth at the top of the atmosphere. I've heard about uh, aerosol injection attempts into the atmosphere and wanting to see how uh, controlling the cloud cover does that. It makes sense to me that uh, at least on a conceptual level, that if you could manipulate the space weather, um, maybe that could have an impact on, you know, changing Earth's uh, temperature or some of its other properties as well. Um, I am curious, though, about the idea of controlling the space weather. If you, if you had your choice, you know, would you choose to take a potentially dangerous uh, stream of particles that was headed towards us, would you choose to deflect it away from the planet entirely? Would you choose to like rotate it 180 degrees so that the effective magnetic field in the key direction went from anti-aligned with Earth's magnetic field to aligned with Earth's magnetic field so that we would deflect it away? What, what do you think ideally would be the best way to protect Earth in a, in a sustaining fashion from these space weather events? Because I think if, if we aren't going to deal with, you know, okay, how do we protect ourselves once it arrives, then we just have to make sure it never arrives. Yeah, so... Um... So there's a paper on this that has a few different ideas on how to uh, deflect um, space weather um, or charged particles from space weather. And you don't even need to, um, you don't need to deflect them at that um, great of an angle even for it to be effective. Um, so if you could do this at um, the Lagrange point, um, Basically, if you just had, you know, satellites that could create a artificial magnetic field that could, you know, maybe maneuver a little bit towards the coronal mass ejection and deflect, uh, it's, it could be relatively simple. Okay. You know, when you start talking about satellites in space weather, I think of the cons along with the pros and one of the huge huge cons is space weather on earth is protected by our atmosphere right the the charged particles all get absorbed by the atmosphere they don't make it down to the ground so as far as humans are concerned it's only the induced currents that are really a hazard to us like our biological bodies are safe from the particles emitted by the sun themselves here on Earth's surface. But in space, that's not true. If you're an astronaut on board, you know, an Artemis mission or the International Space Station, you're going to get hit by some of these particles from the sun. But if you're a satellite, if you're made of electronic components and you're all the way above Earth's atmosphere, um, you're going to get hit you're going to get hit hard. And I know that a lot of satellites get knocked offline by space weather events. And some satellites can even be rendered permanently non-operable by space weather events. One of the things that has uh, 
sort of changed about planet Earth over the last three or four years is we have seen an explosion in the number of low Earth orbiting satellites, uh, primarily driven by the desire to provide high-speed 5G satellite internet service to the entire world. Um, we have, I believe, and you can correct me if this is wrong, but I believe that the majority of active satellites that serve planet Earth have been launched 2019 or later because they are a part of these, where SpaceX's Starlink is the largest satellite provider. Like, it's the largest... It has more satellites up in orbit than, I believe, all other satellite operators combined. You know, we have something like 24 GPS satellites to serve the entire world, and we have thousands of these new Starlink satellites. And the plan is over the next decade or so, uh, people want to put hundreds of thousands of satellites in orbit. And my nightmare scenario, and, and you might say, oh, that's not likely, but my nightmare scenario is that we put these satellites up there, we set them up so that they don't collide as planned because they have artificial intelligence that guides them and they all talk to each other. And then this is the plan we've got. And then a big flare hits or a big coronal mass ejection comes straight for us. And it knocks all these satellites out. It makes them unnavigable. No one's thought to put in the foresight to design a safe parking orbit for them so that in the event that a flare is coming, they, they aren't at risk of collision. And then we just get one collision after another in this horrific chain reaction. And we wind up filling low Earth orbit with space debris that will render most launches impossible because you can't get through this field of debris without having it collide with your launch vehicle um, for thousands of years. We call this disaster Kessler syndrome and um, I, I get worried about this when I think about just sort of this confluence of recklessness and unpreparedness coming together. It, is that me being like a chicken little saying that the sky is falling? The no, sky no, is no, falling? no. I think that's like the whole astrophysics community, I think. So um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, at one of the recent astrophysics conferences, someone brought up how um, solar max and these mega constellations are going to, you know, hit a peak at the same time. Um, and that's really, really concerning. So I, I share all of your concerns that you um, just discussed. And I think the satellite uh, companies and operators, they are, you know, not prepared or even aware of this issue. Um, I've talked to some satellite operators who don't even, like, space weather doesn't even, like, register to them, which was just shocking. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we are, we really are setting ourselves up for um, a Kessler syndrome. Um, and a lot of people will respond back to that by saying that, oh, no, SpaceX, you know, they're, they're, the satellites are too low. Um, they're just going to all burn up and they're not going to contribute 
to Kessler syndrome? Well, that's not exactly, you know, how it works. So if, if the SpaceX satellites cause a collision, their debris are going to be knocked further up into higher orbits. But I understand that completely. You know, when you when you smack two objects into each other, all of the debris that comes off of that collision doesn't maintain the same initial trajectory. A bunch of it gets scattered randomly. And that means a bunch of particles, if two satellites collide, and we know this because two satellites have collided previously. When satellites collide, their debris goes in all directions, and some of it gets knocked up to higher energy orbits. So we're not just talking about, oh, this debris is going to stick around for a few years and then deorbit. Some of it will, but some of it will stay up for decades, centuries, millennia, or longer. And, you know, it's kind of it's kind of depressing when we think about how oh look we polluted our own planet and we have to clean up the messes made by previous generations and now this current generation of humans is actually polluting the environment around earth and this is the sort of thing that if we don't set it up so that we do keep it at least clean enough we could ruin this for you know, all of the generations of humans that will ever come after us. Yeah, definitely. And one of my um, major concerns with the mega constellations is that um, they're producing known ozone depleting chemicals. Um, so the past few months, you know, I spent considerable time trying to get people to write to the FCC and say no to all these mega constellations um, because of this ozone problem. And they partially listen to us. Um, so when these satellites made up of aluminum, when they burn up, they create alumina, which is known to deplete the ozone. And you know, our ozone is thin. It's like the thickness of three pennies or something, and we're going to constantly burn satellites through that? Like, it's it's really scary. And so I, I don't think we should be doing that at all. Um, uh, the plan to deflect space weather, I think, you know, that's outside of our Earth environment, you know, closer to the sun. Uh, I think that's fine, but I, I don't think we should be filling up our orbit with all of these satellites with chemicals that we, we don't know the consequences of. Uh, I think it's really, really concerning. But we were partially successful in stopping that. So recently, um, we're kind of stopping it for now. So um, SpaceX's next-gen um, Starlinks were only approved for one-fourth of what they applied for. And that's partly because of this ozone issue. Well, that's that's very heartening to hear. You know, I I still remember that SpaceX was originally asked and agreed to uh, have these satellites be no greater than visual magnitude eight. And then they were asked and they changed to be no greater than visual magnitude seven and smaller numbers are bigger here. So um, as of today, all of the satellites are still magnitude seven or brighter. Like they, they haven't met this goal that they said was their goal for any of them. And 
you know, I'm really concerned because at the rate we're launching these satellites and then deorbiting them because they're in low Earth orbit, they are going to be deorbited. We're talking about increasing the amount of aluminum. And if I did my, my math right, I think we are talking about increasing the amount of aluminum that burns up in Earth's atmosphere. Because we get some from like comets and asteroids and micrometeoroids that, that strike our atmosphere. But we're talking about increasing it by by somewhere between a factor of 10 and 100. So we, we are part of these mega constellations. What they're doing is they are changing Earth's environment because of the deorbiting pollution. And that's in addition to the damage that they do to the night sky, that the damage that they do to astronomy, the damage they do to the science of planetary protection, and in addition to this problem we just talked about of Kessler syndrome. If it were up to you, Sierra, and I know it's not, but if it were up to you, what sort of regulations would you impose on satellite mega constellations. If you were the FCC, what would you say, here's what you have to do if you want to be a satellite mega constellation provider? Oh gosh, I mean, I, I think we should just put a total stop to the mega constellations. Like, I, I don't want to see the end of astrophysics. And people are already talking about that, or at least ground-based astrophysics. Um, so if we have 500,000 satellites up there, um, it's going to create overall light pollution. I mean, it's just, I just get sick, like, thinking about it. It's just, it's so sad for astronomy and astrophysics. And, um, you know, I, I, I can see the Starlink satellites all the time, like, naked eye. And I just, feel like violated by that. I, I think we should have a total stop to these mega constellations. I think there should be a limit to how many you're allowed to launch. There shouldn't be hundreds of thousands. That's just ridiculous. I mean, I, I don't see a reason why we couldn't do something like we did with GPS, where we say, look, we don't need to put them in low Earth orbit. You don't need your five millisecond latency. You don't need to use this because uh, frames win games and you have to download your HD 4K streaming, you know, everywhere you go. Um, you could have it be a little less bandwidthy at a cost of reducing your satellites by a huge number. I would I would be up for, look, there are a lot of good things we can do for a large number of human beings with satellite mega constellations, but by having it be redundant, by having it be competitive, by having it be more resource consuming than it needs to be, um, this is just, this is an unnecessary loss for everyone on earth. Um, and I don't know if you would you would be okay with that, but I'd I'd much rather see that than sort of the wild wild west free for all that we have today. Yeah, definitely. So I want to set up and imagine this scenario for you, okay? I want you to imagine that a large X class solar flare with the worst case scenario magnetic field, right? It's aligned perfectly anti-aligned in the Z direction, like the solar physicists call it, with Earth's magnetic field. 
imagine it's going to happen in 2023. It's going to happen next year. If you had this kind of foresight and you were trying to talk to the average person on the street, what would you tell them are the dangers and disasters that they would need to prepare for? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think just going to the ready.gov website and looking at their space weather page um, and having a stockpile of supplies just in case we have a major power outage would be very, very smart. I think all of us can do that. Um, and, you know, why not? Um, if I had unlimited resources, you know, I would build like an underground cloud chamber or something. <laughs> a cloud chamber? So this way you could still detect cosmic muons when you're underground? Yeah. Um, or you could still have oxygen if, if the atmosphere gets blown off. <laughs> oh, that kind of preparation. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I just, I would encourage everyone to, you know, have some supplies for a power outage. I mean, there's a lot of reasons uh, we could have a power outage. Um, and we're, you know, we're entering solar max probably in about a year or so. Um, so, you know, I think it's likely that some cities, some major cities might have a power outage due to um, a geomagnetic uh, induced current. Whew. I mean, I don't, I don't want that to be the case, but I do want us to be prepared because I know, look, it, I know it's more likely to happen during solar max than any other time. And I know it's more likely to happen uh, during a large solar cycle than a small solar cycle with a, with a bunch of sunspots than with no sunspots. But isn't it also true that these are just on average and it's really also the case that this could happen at any time from either a coronal mass ejection or a solar flare or possibly even other types of space weather? Oh, definitely. So it, it doesn't have to be solar max. Uh, in fact, we could have, you know, unfortunate things happen just with a regular CME. So um, that's how I found out about this problem and how big it is actually. So, you know, GPS could go out from just a few charged particles hitting, you know, the wrong microelectronics. And then just that would be a huge problem because we would lose all of our uh, timing systems. So we rely on GPS for timing for everything, for finance, for even for our power grids, actually. Um, so if, if we just lost that, um, that a few um, solar energizing particles hit our GPS satellites uh, the wrong way, which could happen anytime, um, that would also cause major problems um, worldwide potentially if it hit all of the navigation and timing satellites. I, I don't think that sounds good. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound like something I want to happen. I, I mean, we have a few, I, I know that GPS is a little bit redundant, but I don't want 
yeah, I don't want to lose the satellites. I don't want them to be knocked offline. I'm glad we have extras. But when I think about the fact that there are only 24 of them, and that's a risk, and then I think about how many thousands of operating low-Earth orbit satellites there are, and how no precautions have been taken against this happening, uh, I, I don't think this looks very good for us. No, not at all. Um, so there are a few astrophysicists that actually think that if um, an alien you know, flew by our solar system, and they saw that we didn't have means to protect ourselves from CMEs or GRBs. Um, they would think that there's no intelligent life here. Um, and I, I'd have to agree with that. Are you saying we failed the interstellar Turing test? Like we're just yeah. not intelligent <laughs> yeah, enough? Basically. basically, I mean, we know these ha these events happen all the time in the universe, and we, we're just sitting here waiting for the next big one. We know that Mars may have been destroyed by space weather, um, and we're not doing anything to, to prepare ourselves. So, yeah, I think the aliens are right. You know, they might be, and I, I was frustrated to learn about our our history, which is to say we've gone and we've collected tree ring data, we've collected ice core data, we've collected underground deposit data, and we found that, you know, okay, these... Uh, these events that happened like in, 19, in 1859, it's not a one-off unique event, right? We had the June 23rd, 2012 event that if that had hit us, because if there had been that nine-day time differential, we would have had a direct hit. We know that there was a big Carrington-level event in the year 993. We know there was another one in 774, and we know there was another one in 660 BC. We also know that there was a more powerful one, one that was at least 10 times as powerful a little over 9,000 years ago. And then there was another one that was, I think, even more powerful than that, something like 11,000 years ago. So, you know, whether this is a few times in a thousand years or, yeah, it's more like once a century or even more, um, the fact is... The last really, really big one to hit us was 1859. We've had smaller ones that have caused substantial problems for us, and this is really um, this is really a head in the sand moment for humanity. We've we've managed to steer clear of the danger so far, but who knows how much longer that'll last? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, the Carrington event was not the biggest um, event. There are also these Miyake events, which are the ones that are 10 times stronger or more than the Carrington event. And those are the ones that you can see uh, in the ice cores and tree rings. Um, Carrington events do not show up in the ice cores and tree rings, as far as I know. Um, so we don't have a good record there of the Carrington event. Yeah, I think I think the way it happens and and you might be able to correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I think the way it happens is when you get enough high energy charged particles that hit earth from the sun, um that what they do is they um 
they hit some of the atoms in our upper atmosphere, right? We have nitrogen in our upper atmosphere. And nitrogen uh, is an atom with seven uh, protons and seven neutrons. And what can happen is when you get hit by these high energy particles, um, some of them will cause uh, either neutron absorption or will change a proton into a neutron. And after a decay, what you end up with is you end up with carbon-14. And carbon-14 is something that we can identify because living organisms take it up. So if you see a big spike in carbon-14 that happens at one point in time and it gets incorporated into the tree rings and then it dies back down to the normal level, uh, that's how you can identify by cutting open these old trees like, oh, these events happen. So that didn't do it for the Carrington event, but it did multiple times in the past, which gives us some indication that, oh no, like we we have these super Carrington events that impact Earth. We just haven't had, you know, human civilization with electric and electronic infrastructure since then. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you wrote an amazing article um, about that actually. But yeah, um, the it's, it's kind of crazy that we don't have very much data on the frequency of Carrington events. And I think that's um, partially why there's not as much attention towards it because there's kind of some misunderstanding. Like some people just, some people seem to say, oh, these happen, you know, once in a thousand years. Oh, we don't really know. Um, so I think that's part of the problem. Um, one thing I did want to mention was um, on, on those lines, uh, was some data from the Kepler Space Telescope. So there was just this shocking, shocking paper um, that looked at um, the number of super, you know, Miyake-type events that you would, you definitely would see in like ice cores or tree rings um, if they happened here. Um, and they looked at how frequent those were happening um, in solar-like stars. And um, so I have the numbers here just so I, I don't get it wrong, but in 265 solar-like stars, they found 2,341 super flare events. And, and this is the Kepler mission. So this was only operating for like three years. Yeah, it was only five years of data. They, oh, wow, they wow. found 2,341 super flares in only about 200-something solar-like stars. Oh, so... So what if our sun is just, you know, going through an inactive period right now and we're just waiting for it to wake up? That's what the data from the Kepler Space Telescope seem to indicate. You know, that's that's suggestive and and pretty fearsome. The The only thing that heartens me is that about 5% of the stars out there are solar-like, and the Kepler mission looked at about 150,000 stars. So that tells me that, you know, okay, there are sun-like stars that have these scary properties to them, but maybe ours isn't one of them for at least right now. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I can hope for that too. So one thing I did want to make sure I asked about is... There are coronal mass ejections um, and there are solar flares, both of those 
um, can lead to problematic space weather events here on Earth. Are there other types of space weather events that are caused by the sun that we should be concerned about that are maybe less well known than those two major ones? Um, well, so just solar energizing particles in general can, from the sun that we get all the time, um, you can consider that a part of space weather. And those can be disastrous for a lot of things, like we mentioned for satellites, um, but um, even for aircraft. Um, so currently right now there are some you know, aircraft that are actually grounded um, because their electronics don't um, meet the, the flux level compliance for all these charged particles. Um, so there are charged particles all the time that can cause um, electronic uh, upsets. Wow. So are you saying are you saying that these mystery flight disappearances that we had, like like the Malaysia Airlines flight from a few years ago, that this isn't necessarily how it went down, but but that something like just charged particles from the sun could take a full plane down even under normal non flaring conditions if the plane isn't properly resilient against it? Ah, yes, that, that is possible. So there are just these single event upsets that can just make your electronics um, go black. You know, just the wrong charge gets in there and you can have like a soft software offset or it can, you know, ruin your hardware. So that, that's definitely uh, a possibility that that happens. Um, it, it's hard to say afterward, right? With satellites and aircraft, if one charged particle was the case, um, because it's hard to diagnose whether that happened or not. No, it is, and and especially when you can't find the plane, I guess. But one of the one of the things I worry about, though, is you know, it's always a question of the wrong thing hitting in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it's a little scary to think, you know that there are these particles just streaming through us and our electronics and everything on Earth at any given time, and that if one of them hits the wrong thing in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, we could have a catastrophe ensue from literally one stray solar particle. Definitely, yeah. Well, uh, on that note, what I want to ask you, um, because we're, we're about out of time, is... Um, Sierra, I want to thank you for joining me and ask if you have any final words or thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners. Yeah, Ethan, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been uh, really wonderful uh, speaking with you. Um, I guess one thing that I, I wanted to add is that I just think that um, overall, you know, we've invested in, in too much fantasy. You know, I think in general with our technology, you know, Mars and the metaverse and microchips in our brain and flying cars, you know, everyone's wanting to invest um, in these fantasy worlds, it seems. Um, and I just think all of that fantasy is just going to come to a screeching halt um, if we have a decades-long power outage. 
so I just think it's really, really important that uh, we take this possibility of a Carrington event or possibly worse event happening much more seriously. You know, thank you for that. I, I think that's a really important message. Um, I'm someone who I, I make things with my hands, I build things, I craft things. Uh, and I am someone who appreciates taking the time and care to do it right the first time. Because if you have to rebuild it, if you have to redo it, if you have to remake it, if it gets destroyed, all of that in the end is a net waste. It's net loss, where if you had just done it right the first time and built in the right fail-safes and built the right mitigating factors and made it resilient against the types of pressures it's going to face, you wouldn't have to do it. You wouldn't have to rebuild it. And, you know, we do have to be aware that, look, there were some dangers that when we first built this infrastructure for our planet, we weren't aware of them. We don't have that excuse now. We are aware and we have the opportunity to do it right. And I really hope, like Sierra says, um, that we get the political will and the economic will and the will of society to do it right before it's too late and we just have to rebuild from whatever rubble and ashes and debris we have left. Um, so thank you, Sierra, for joining us. And thanks to all of you out there for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is made possible only through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. And I'd like to thank everyone who donates at the $5 a month level and up. So thanks go to Chad Marler, Jeff Bonwick, Lainey Chewis, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Jakutas, John Mithat, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pattern Shift, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, C. Green Mango, Stefan Bernegger, William Blair, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benish Tech LLC, Brian Terry, David Charney, Flo, George Church, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Jose Enrique, Kilia Opu, Marcelo Barnabar, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafal Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Rick Baker, Ron Schiffman, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Zepeda, Ben Head, Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabrielle Nader, Glenn McDavid, Ira Cohen, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Pavel Zuzelski, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Terzakian, Stuart Lending, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas Tomas Waldron, Wayne Pierkarski, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Young Coes. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. Starts with a bang.